Well, good morning to those of you just joining us online, or if you're maybe watching this at a later date on our archive, which we do have, if you didn't know. I, I hope I don't, if you're watching online, I might lean this way a little bit today, because there's more people sitting on this side, so we'll see what happens. Um, John 19 is where we're going to be. We're going to be in verses 23 to 30, um, but before we get to that, I did just want to take a pause and uh, just say thank you for those of you who are who have been praying for us this week. Um, we were in Florida all week. I, I know everybody, I think, in the room has heard, but just to, wanted to take the chance from this spot, this pulpit or whatever we call it, to say thank you for um, giving us the flexibility to go do that. We lost uh, Amy, and so uh, we were able to be down there with her mom, and so that was really uh, good. I think it was really helpful to uh, have that smiling baby around and uh, to have her other granddaughter around as well, and so uh, we were able to go down there and care, and also kind of, you know, get started on some of the planning things that happen in that situation, and so uh, if I'm a little bit tired today, uh, that's why. We drove to Florida, drove back yesterday, and uh, later today we're going to participate in our district's district conference in Ocean City, so it was literally got home at 7.30 last night, did a couple loads of laundry, and repacked the bags, and uh, you can pray for us for that, and then uh, we'll be back on Wednesday this week to, um, you know, live life, and we'll be gathered again with you next Sunday and all that. So just wanted to say thank you uh, for that. I think most of you know this, uh, but Dennis, who preached here a number of times, uh, and I've actually gone back and watched some of those sermons because I think those are the only ones of him preaching that that are on video. So I was glad that we were able to capture those. Um, he was one of the best preachers I've heard uh, that I got to know. And uh, he was my preaching professor in Bible college. And so I couldn't help but think about that as I was kind of opening up the Bible this week, preparing for what I knew was going to happen this morning, uh, and, and continuing to go back to these scriptures over and over and over, over a lifetime, looking for Jesus so that, you know, I was reminded that this is where we get to know and love the same Jesus that Dennis knew that led to the life that he lived. Uh, one of the most beautiful things I saw this week. Um, we were, Amy and I were sitting in his office in his house and, uh, we were looking through old documents as you do and just finding more amazing things that we didn't know about. And I thought to myself, this is what I want my kids to find. This is the kind of stuff I want my family to find when I'm gone. Uh, and so just again, thank you for letting us go down there and being able to do all of that. Um, we are in the process of planning something in December, which will be live streamed. A friend of mine offered his building, so if you all want to participate in that, you could. Um, but today, uh, in our message, we're going to jump forward in John a bit, and we're going to spend a little bit of time in chapter 19, mostly in verses 23 to 30. Uh, and I was a little bit convicted this week, standing, kind of talking with different folks and friends. And you're going to see me with a paper Bible up here a little bit more often, just because I think there's something really beautiful about the fact that we have it like this. And I would encourage you, as you do your own Bible study at home, do it from a paper Bible, because a paper Bible doesn't send you emails and doesn't text messages don't come through, and there's just something about it. And so uh, I was kind of reaffirmed in that, and so I'm going to read from the Scriptures. Uh, but just as a recap of where we are, because I know we're kind of jumping in John a little bit now, uh, because we want to get to another series we have coming up in the next month. Uh, Jesus has been to the garden. He's been betrayed uh, with a kiss from Judas, you remember all that. Uh, he's then put through an unjust trial. And, and while this is happening, Peter has denied Jesus three times, even though he specifically said he wouldn't do that. 
and he does do that. Uh, Jesus is beaten. He's finally hung on a cross to be executed by the Romans. And this is basically where we are finding ourselves as we look at John 19. I'm going to read verses 23 to 30, uh, and I'm going to do my best to kind of keep myself on track this morning. Uh, and then we're really going to just, just focus in at the end on verses 28 uh, through 30 and, and two things that Jesus says there. But let me read verses 23 to 30 from John chapter 19, and then we'll do our best to walk through this together. John 19, starting in verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier. Also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar of sour wine stood there, and so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you that we have it recorded. Thank you that we can now kind of dive into it and see the, the, the layers upon layers upon layers of beauty that there are in this gospel for us. And I pray that you would help us to see what you want us to see individually and as a church family, and we would apply those things to our lives as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the scene for us is set this morning. Uh, Jesus is on the cross, hanging there, suffering, remember, for us, And this text is full of symbolism, and there's so many things you could do in this text. And and in this moment, uh, just to set the scene, he's pulling himself up, literally physically pulling himself up by the nails that are through his hands and through his ankles to get a breath every time he needs to breathe. If you didn't know crucifixion, you actually pass away from asphyxiation, from suffocating in your own blood, in your lungs. And so it's a torturous death. But then to add to that, what we see is that there are Roman soldiers below him doing what the Bible describes as casting lots for his tunic. And so here's a little piece of context for you. Maybe you you didn't know this. I didn't know this little detail until I studied this week. But a Jew at this time would have had commonly five pieces of clothing. Uh, And so there would have been sandals, a turban, a belt, an inner tunic, and then that outer garment that we read about. And so it's easy to kind of understand how four soldiers would divide up those other four things. uh, And then um, they would basically, because it was a nice outer garment, right? It was seamless, woven from one piece. It was nicer. uh, They didn't want to tear it and, and divide it. And so they gambled for its sole possession. Now think of how disturbing that scene is, right? How crass that is. But what they didn't realize is that they're actually fulfilling a prophecy 
about the Messiah from Psalm 22, 18, which says, they divide my garments among them and from my clothing they cast lots. Now again, it's incredibly disturbing if you stop to think about this moment, right? It's bad enough to take a dead man's belongings. And like soldiers do this on the battlefield, and I'm sure it's disturbing, and we would say that's a really disturbing thing to do. But it's even more disturbing to gamble over that person's belongings while he is gasping for his last breaths, just an arm shot away from you. He's hanging there, suffocating to death, hearing what they're doing, I'm guessing by this point, maybe not able to see what they're doing because of the blood and the flies and everything going on in his face, but he knows what they're doing and they're gambling for his clothing, you know, just hard hearts. And and so these soldiers are, I think, an unwitting kind of picture of what a world without God can look like. This is, this is possible for all of us as humanity. This is where our hearts can lead us without Jesus. All of us are these soldiers living in this cold, harsh, disturbing world. This is where we end up. But then we see in this text a contrast between this group of people who are living without God, without Jesus, and another group. This is another group, and this group is a microcosm of the care that we receive as the people who are with Jesus and aligned with him and his kingdom uh, and, and have come under his care. And so besides the Roman soldiers, we know that there's four women here at the foot of the cross. We see him in verse 25. His mother, Jesus' mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Now, some people make the mistake of thinking that Mary, the wife of Clopas, is his mother's sister, but that's two different people. And so there's four Roman soldiers and four women who love and who follow Jesus or who are with Jesus in this moment. This is not a, this contrast is not an accident here. This is God's work through the inspiration of John the Apostle to give us a, a visual that you and I would see the stark contrast of life with Jesus and life without Jesus and, and life in the community of being part of what Jesus is about and the care he has for you. Now, again, imagine the utter despair and helplessness that these women are experiencing. You, you parents in the room, imagine seeing your child up on a cross. And the, the, uh, to me, the worst is the helplessness. I can't do anything. And we see in this text, John the Apostle, who's writing this, uh, that they are experiencing this as they watch Jesus die slowly. So we see the four women and we know that John is there because of what Jesus says a little bit later. And so they're literally watching Jesus and the other two thieves be tortured to death and they could do nothing but watch. So what an awful, awful place to be. And this is what this place was always. This is where they did this. Now, obviously we know that one of these women is Jesus' mother, Mary. And so imagine again, her experience there on the cross is the baby she had nursed, the, the boy she had held in her arms who had run off to the temple that one time, right? The, the, the man who had brought her, I would assume, nothing but joy. And now she's here. We know from parallel passages in Mark and in Matthew 
uh, that the second woman, his mother's sister, as in John says his mother's sister, this is Salome, Zebedee's wife, who's the mother of James and John, who Jesus had to rebuke not that long ago. He, he, was, he corrected her for her ambition for the sons. Remember, they, their mom goes and says, who's going to be first in the kingdom? And he says, that's not how it is. And, and, and so she must have been able, though, to understand that somehow there was love in that correction from Jesus, because here she is. Here she is grieving for him. And don't forget, grieving for her sister, Mary. Like there's that familial taking on of her grief that she must have felt. And so we, we don't know anything about Mary, the wife of Clophis, the, the third woman, but we do know lots about Mary Magdalene. We know from Mark and from Luke that demons had been cast out of Mary Magdalene. Jesus described her as one who had sinned much, but also loved much. Mary was the one who had come to Jesus in a Pharisee's house while Jesus was reclining at table with the uppity ups, right, in the Pharisee's house. That's pretty brave of her. She washes his feet with her tears. She wipes him with her hair. She anoints him with perfume. And so for her, this is a, I mean, imagine the loss she's experiencing. The one person who like believed in me, who accepted me, who loved me, who defended me is gone. What now? So these women are experiencing agony and Jesus even in his most physically painful moment, still has the mercy, still has the care in him because he is so connected to the life of God, the Father and God, the Spirit, that he says in verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that's John who's talking, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Now, there was a whole half a sermon that we could have gotten into about Jesus calling his mother woman, because that bugged me. But that's actually a term of honor. He's bringing his mother from this son-mother relationship into relationship as friends, that we're, we're friends now. He's not doing that in a dishonoring way, and some of that's cultural. But the language here reveals a real depth of love and care that Jesus has for his own. Jesus loves his own. He, he was in incredible pain, physical pain. One commentator expressed his physical pain like this. It was searing pain as tissue was torn from his lacerated back as he moved up and down against the rough timber. And then another agony began. A deep crushing pain in the chest as the pericardium slowly filled with serum and began to compress the heart. And so Jesus is in this excruciating pain from all fronts. He, he's out of, he can't get his breath. If you've ever been out of breath, that feeling is horrible. And so all of this is going on and Jesus is literally like at the edge of death. I remember reading one commentator said he can feel the shadow of death over him. He knew that in the next hour, darkness is gonna cover this place and he is going to bear the world's sin alone in this darkness. And so all of this is on him. But even in the midst of that, he thinks of those who are his own. And this same Jesus who thought in that moment so beautifully of those who were there, specifically his mother, is the same Jesus today that thinks of you and I. He, he's the same depth of love for those who are his even now. He still cares intimately 
completely for you and I, if we know and love him. And so Jesus' instructions from the cross also just show us how like thoughtful and perfect his care is, right? He's situated in a certain culture where a woman who has nobody is in a dangerous place. And so the phrase in verse 26 describing John as standing nearby means that John was standing beside Mary. And so evidently, unless John is just uh, a little bit selfish, John's the only disciple at the cross and he is standing alongside Mary supporting her. Now, this uh, commentator who I'm about to read is a little bit more meaningful this week because it came from a commentary that was gifted to me by my father-in-law. Uh, that, and I actually use them every week, Lenski, uh, a great set. But it said this, these two belong together because these two were losing in Jesus' death more than the rest. Mary was losing her son and John was losing the master who loved him beyond the rest. Jesus and John had a very beautiful, deep relationship. And so as John and Mary are looking up in disbelief, disillusionment, misery, agony at this honestly mutilated body of their loved one. Jesus pushes up, gets as much breath as he can in his lungs and says with all his strength, John, this is your mother, Mary, this is your son. And so in obedience, John and Mary come together. John takes Mary as a surrogate mother. And even in this act, we see I think the reality, a little picture of Christian community playing itself out. Why? Jesus knew that this care was not just a one-way street. It wasn't just about John caring for Mary. We know that John was a very young man and he would go on to do gospel ministry. Now he had his own mother, but he was a very young man and he would go on to do great gospel ministry. So not only was Mary cared for by John, but John now had the care and the benefit of living with Mary. Like think about the depth of relationship that Mary had with God, right? She was used specifically by God for a certain reason. And so John is now able to have these, and I, I think of the early morning, the late night conversations that, that I've had with uh, family members who are older and wiser than me as I go visit. And I think that's what John is, is gaining out of this. He's gaining a, a spiritual mother, a, a wise woman to, to, to speak into his life. This must have been an encouragement. I'm sure they had their fights. I mean, people living together, that's what's going to happen. But I'm sure Mary must have encouraged him. Uh, there are some who would say that Mary even went on some missionary journeys with John. Uh, I don't know if that's true or not. But this is what the Christian community does. It's not a one-way street. It's a two-way street. It's a family of mutual care that's initiated by and empowered by Jesus himself. And that's still true today, that Jesus is empowering and initiating our care for one another. This, this is now your brothers and sisters. This is now your mother. This is your son. We have spiritual children and parents and brothers and sisters that we did not have before. Now, as we read the other gospels, we see that after Jesus gives his mother to John, Darkness falls on the land from the sixth hour until the ninth hour. That's Matthew 27. Uh, and this darkness is symbolic of a specific reality. And that reality is that Jesus is becoming a curse for those who will trust in him so that they, we, will not receive the curse of our own sin. See, in Jewish thinking, to be cursed 
was to be separated from God. And to have his blessing was to have his face looking on you with approval. This is why we say every week, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. Jesus had never known anything but the face of God the Father turning towards him in peace. They had worked together in that relationship in the Trinity that we can't even explain in the creation of the universe. They delighted in one another and the Holy Spirit together. But now as Jesus bears our sins, he becomes a curse. Galatians 3 says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. If you think that you can obey your way to heaven, that's actually a curse that you are under. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. So if you think I'm going to follow the law and get to heaven, you better follow every single one perfectly, dot every I, cross every T, and if you failed once, it's over. But Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us because here's what's written three verses later in that same place in Galatians. Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So Jesus became for us what we could not be. And so at this moment of separation, this cursed moment of Jesus dying, saying it is finished and being giving up his spirit as we see in the other gospels, the nails, the cross, the physical pain fades into the background of the pain of being separated from God the Father. Jesus cries in the darkness in Matthew 27, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why is your face not shining on me, as number six says? And so darkness falls. So now that all kind of gets us to these last couple of things that Jesus said here on the cross in John. During that darkness, Jesus, in the Gospel of John, says two phrases. He says, it is finished, and he says, uh, he says I thirst, and then he says, it is finished. Verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, and this phrase is really important, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Now, I don't know if you've ever been really thirsty and thought to yourself, I'm going to drink some vinegar. But that's what happened here. I mean, the cruelty, right? To not even be able to dip it in some water but sour wine. Now that phrase in parentheses, at least in my Bible, to fulfill the scriptures, is what I want to kind of draw your attention to because Jesus said this to fulfill the scriptures. Everything in Jesus' life was aimed at the mission that he had, which was not to condemn the world, but to save the world. That's why Jesus came into the world. But it's also... Uh, it's also that Jesus fulfills the prophecy of the one that the Jews had called the Messiah. This is what he is doing. The Christ, the one who would come and rescue and redeem and save. And this is who we know and believe is Jesus. And so the apostle Paul tells us Christ died for our sins, what? In accordance with the scriptures. That he was 
fulfilling what was said about the one who was to come. At this moment, he fulfills Psalm 69, verse 21. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. This is a messianic prophecy that Jesus, according to John, is intentionally fulfilling so we know for sure who he is. Even this, the use of a hyssop branch is not normal here. That's an unusual thing. The, the hyssop branch that they used to extend the sponge to Jesus' lips it is parallel in the scriptures to uh, the plant prescribed in Exodus 12 to apply the blood of the Passover to, uh, lamb to the doorpost so that the death angel would pass by. There's too many examples like this we could do. That Jesus is fulfilling all of this. But understand that all of this is being told to us by John for one purpose, and it's the purpose that John told us he's writing this book. In just a couple chapters, we're going to, again, be reminded of John's purpose in writing all these things down, which is so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's a title for Messiah that he's fulfilling, that you would believe in him and that you would be granted eternal life with him. John's not mentioning that Jesus is fulfilling the scriptures as like some little aside. It's not a side thing. It's really important. This is so that you would see Jesus for who he is. He's not some great historical figure. He's not just some magic worker in the past. He's not some smart rabbi that did these good teachings. He is the Christ. He is the savior of the world who has come into the world to save you and rescue you and all of humanity. And so Jesus is the Messiah from the Old Testament who's been prophesied and who's now fulfilling even this specific prophecy about sour wine. This is how much God cares for these little details so that you would have a place to hang your faith, that your faith would have something to grab onto. You say, man, look at all these prophecies in the Old Testament and Jesus is fulfilling them. But that's not the last thing Jesus says here. As Jesus is hanging there, as we said, as he can feel the shadow of death coming over him, he's hanging in agony. And so what's his last word in that moment? And what's his word to us this morning? This is an important word. Jesus, according to the, in my Bible, it says he said, but actually he shouted, it is finished. It is finished. One of my favorite worship songs. I don't even know why we don't sing it here because I've never thought to sing it. One of my favorite worship songs, the chorus is, it is finished, he has done it, let your weary heart rejoice. Now understand, again, it is finished is not a submissive cry, it's a shout of victory. He has accomplished your salvation. In the Greek, it's only one word, and it's in the perfect tense, meaning it is finished, and it always will be finished. There isn't a second atonement coming. And it's certainly not coming from us obeying rules. It is finished and it always will be finished. It always will be finished. But what had Christ finished? What has Christ fulfilled and finished for us? He has fulfilled and finished the Old Testament ceremonial law. The, the messianic prophecies, all of that. But most of all, on top of all of that, he had finished atonement for the sin of the world. We sing about this every week. 
And we celebrate every Sunday a little mini Easter because the resurrection is the proof that this atonement is paid. And so his cry of victory didn't come because he was dying a horrible death, but because, as 2 Corinthians 5, 21 said, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that what? In him we might become the righteousness of God. He became a curse for us. He was separated from God so that we would never have to know the horror of eternal punishment for sin. He suffered total separation from the Father as he bore the penalty that we deserve. And then he cried out with this shout, it's done. I have accomplished it. And because he paid for our sins, the way we come to him is empty-handed. We have nothing to bring. Simply to the cross I cling, as the hymn says. To come to Christ with some of our own work in our hands is insulting to the cross. It's, we, we, we must come like the thief who was hanging beside him on the cross. This thief knew he deserved to be there, hanging, and yet, as an act of faith, he simply asked for mercy. He simply asked for mercy. And I love sometimes when I talk to Rod, he will always point out that the thief on the cross could do no righteous act. And yet Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. This is the same call for us to trust in this Jesus who has fulfilled and who has has finished all that is required to give you eternal life. He stands ready to give. And so the question is, have we Come to him. Do you believe in him? If not, my hope is that you come to him and you gain eternal life. And if you do, my hope is that you walk out of here this morning being reminded once again of the victorious, eternal life with Jesus that is already coming into the world as a result of this death and the resurrection that we're going to read about in just a week or two as you follow Jesus day by day. You walk in resurrection power. Because Jesus said on the cross, it's finished. There's no more debt to pay. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for, uh, again, thank you first and foremost for our salvation, for your work on our behalf, for hanging there to pay and atone for our sins. I pray that as we look at the cross that we wouldn't see it as some unnecessary, disgusting act, but as a window into the way that sin destroys everything and a window into the way that you have loved us. And that while we were yet sinners, you hung there for us. While we were your enemies, you made atonement for our sin and made us your friends. And Father, I pray that as we uh, once again sing together, that we would uh, be reminded of all these truths and we would be uh, empowered to live in that resurrection life that we will see in a little bit in this gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna do something we haven't done in a while and close our time by singing again together.